The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. This is Carol Bossert. You're uh, welcome to the Museum Life. Uh, I hope it is beautiful where you are listening from today. It is beautiful here in Washington, and those little Cherry blossoms are finely bursting, uh, along with the rest of our other spring blooms. So I will, I wish you all a beautiful spring day today. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been, uh, looking inside museums, uh, uh, most of our guests have been uh, coming from within the museum community, uh, talking about creativity and leadership, uh, issues of, of digital media, and uh, but we also have been uh, looking at museums from the outside, not outsiders per se, but people who come from different backgrounds and have applied their uh, their skills and their knowledge to the museum issues. And so today we are going, we're very pleased to have one of these uh, uh, supporters, someone looking from the outside in at our business and looking at an, a really important part of the museum world, and that is the economics of our museum practice. Uh, it is one thing to have the best mission in the world and the greatest ideas. Ideas are free, but heat, light, and electricity aren't. So we need to look at at uh, museum projects and museum ideas and our museum business as a business. And really then what is that right mix of mission and market? Today I am thrilled to have with me uh, someone who can shed light on this area, I think better than anyone I know. Uh, Bill Owens is a friend and a colleague. We've worked together for many years on uh, projects, and uh, today Bill is the principal of Owens Economics. He has a broad base of experience in management, planning, and business analysis. Uh, he has, since founding Owens Economics and for over 30 years with Economic Research Associates, we, many of us know that as ERA, and AECOM Economics, Bill has directed uh, or participated in numerous <clears throat> consulting assignments involving museums, historical and cultural attractions, and visitor centers. Uh, these assignments have been under 
undertaken at a very high strategic level, as well at the level of individual project feasibility. Bill's work with museums and historical and cultural attractions have benefited, I think, from his extensive experience in working with a variety of commercial attractions, as well as his great sympathy for the work we do in the museum world. Bill, welcome to the show today. I'm really happy to have you. Carol, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on the show and delighted to be able to uh, speak with you and to reach out to your listeners. Uh, Bill, I ask all of my guests this question and to help uh, help my listeners ground your opinions and your thoughts into your background, uh, uh, you know, sort of all of the things that you've learned and accumulated over these these years and how that's, that's uh, affecting your work today. So could you just tell us, uh, you know, I gave a little bit of an introduction, but could you just talk a little bit more about your experiences in uh, in the business side of uh, cultural attractions and museums and, and how, how that's uh, colored and influenced your thinking. Sure. Going way back uh, to the beginning of my career, I actually wanted to get into real estate development and went to work for uh, a real estate development company that specialized in what I call experience-driven real estate. That was Economics Research Associates, or ERA. Um, when I started, I, they weren't building a whole lot of new theme parks, which was ERA's initial you know, forte in the, the business. Um, so I tried to find other avenues to use the analytical skills that ERA, analytical techniques that ERA had, had developed. Uh, went around to uh, different museum uh, directors and, and tried to uh, basically sell my, my skills and the expertise of the company. And thirty years ago, people weren't interested in uh, in learning how to be a, a business or applying any of the lessons that uh, I thought were important from the commercial attractions world. Uh, all that has changed, as you know, with the uh, with the many different changes in financial conditions and circumstances. And now, museums and cultural attractions, the nonprofit world, uh, make up a large part of my practice. And uh, a lot of the former uh, ERA practitioners who are uh, still advising uh, different types of attractions. Uh, I've worked uh, around the country um, for large national museums. Uh, I'm a veteran, so I take great pride in having worked for the, the Navy Museum, the Army Museum that's uh, proposed uh, for Fort Belvoir and the Marine Corps Museum. I've worked for smaller uh, regional attractions such as the uh, Discovery Science Center in, in Fort Collins, Colorado, some children's museums. I've done a range of, of different museums in terms of range of location and range of, of size. I've also done a lot of work in the area of heritage tourism and, uh, and heritage attractions. You know, so you you do bring this wealth of of background uh, uh, to the to this uh, to this area of, of business, but I don't want any of our listeners to come away with the idea that that you or uh, some of your your colleagues uh, that you've worked with in the economic business uh, development er- arena consider museums just the you know another version of a theme park that's not your your view at all no ab- ab- absolutely not museums are, are are very special places and very unique places very different than commercial attractions 
I think what the economist brings to the museum world is the ability to apply some of the lessons on earned income and how to to deal with visitors in a way that uh, it causes them to, to make repeat visits and to essentially empty their pockets are lessons that are important for museums as well as for commercial attractions. Uh, trying to convert museums to be commercial attractions is not what we're all about in the economic consulting practice. Very, very well put. You know, but but one of the trends that uh, you and I have talked about uh, before, and I, I I find it troubling, although I understand it, and that is that some of the newer attraction or newer newer institutions, newer cultural attractions, if you will, don't like to use the word museum. Can you and I? <clears throat> What have you found? Yeah, I, I, I've worked on a number of projects where the, the clients have essentially said, we're going to be a museum, but we're not going to call ourselves a museum because they, they think there's some sort of, of, of stigma associated with that in the sense that you know, museums, um, in some eyes, are having problems holding uh, audiences. Uh, their financial situations have been you know, written up in the, the press and so forth. I think what is important is that it's not the name, it's how you brand yourself, which includes the name. But I, I'm kind of stumbling over myself, but I think museums are here to stay. I think that uh, uh, the people, when they get into uh, their, the projects, especially the, the new projects with people with great, uh, great expectations and great dreams, realize that it's, it's not just the name of the institution that's important. It's how they, they provide the whole package in terms of branding, in terms of marketing, in terms of, of uh, delivering a, a proper visitor experience. Yeah, yeah, Bill, I don't think you're stumbling over yourself at all. I think that those, those are very good points. And while some of us on the softer side of the museum uh, uh, business uh, sometimes still bristle over those words branding and marketing as if we're, you know, we're selling toothpaste. Uh, but I think the points are well taken and, and how whatever vocabulary is used, the essence is that uh, a museum and institution needs to care about its visitors' needs uh, beyond just getting them in the door. They're not cattle, uh, they're people. And we need to look at them as individuals and we need to be clear that we serve their, their, uh, practical needs as well as their emotional and intellectual needs. Yeah, I guess the best way to put it, and then you said this in your introduction, there is a business aspect of being a museum. And, and that's what is important. That's, that's what I do is, is advise uh, clients on the business aspect of being a museum. And I think uh, the industry, by and large, is, is recognizing the need to be more businesslike in, in how they operate. I yes, uh, I I think many of well, uh, 
as as uh, state, uh, local, and certainly federal uh, uh, monies dry up, as uh, private foundations become uh, more specified, and some of them, um, some private foundations have also, as we know, taken some serious financial hits themselves after 2008. We need to uh, be looking at additional ways of providing that kind of of revenue stream that keeps the doors open and the lights on and and, uh, staff paid a living wage. Uh, All of these things really are part of that that business side of the the equation. And I would add that a lot of these philanthropic interests are, they want to make sure their money is spent wisely. Yes. So they're interested that the museum is well run from a business perspective. Yes, uh, I I think you're you're uh, you're very very right on there. What are a couple of the lessons that uh, I mean? Here we started this conversation by saying museums aren't theme parks and they aren't theme parks, but we can probably learn some things from our cousins, the theme park. And what are a couple of those lessons, Bill? Well, I think uh, just starting from the beginning and the planning and design of of a museum. Um, the revenue generation components uh, need to be thought out in advance rather than, than left to uh, essentially be afterthoughts. And I'm talking about things such as the museum store, uh, space for after-hour functions, uh, and the like. I know it used to be, I think, and maybe I'm just being you know, kind of representing how I look at the world, but the museum store, for example, which can be an important source of, of income, it was, a, was an afterthought. It was you lay out your galleries, you put in the offices, the storage, you know, all the museum function spaces, and then the space that's left over uh, became the store. And I think, uh, again, going back to the, the theme park way of doing things, uh, there is a science to where you put your, your, your retail spaces and where you, how, how you size them. And part of what I do is advise clients on those different elements. If you look at, if you go to a theme park, for example, every time you come out of a major ride, there's an opportunity to buy something to kind of connect yourself with that ride experience. When as you exit the park, there are also opportunities for you to to purchase uh, merchandise to connect yourself with that experience. Um, the, the sizing of those facilities isn't isn't by accident. There's a a mathematical economic formula that helps you determine the optimum size to return a profit on those on those spaces. Um, after hours functions, it's not just a matter of taking a gallery or uh, a lobby area and turning it into uh, a use a space for after hour activities. Uh, there's some market analysis that can be done that can uh, point to the the best size of event. Uh, that the market you know, says there's a need for space for, and to see how you can incorporate that market need into the design of your facility. Uh, there are considerations having to do with, with loading docks, uh, with storage, with warming kitchens, uh, and those sort of things that help optimize the revenue or the income that might come from after-hours functions. Uh, the idea of, of putting in uh, party rooms, birthday party rooms, and be important in some museums. Um, upcharge items, simulators, theaters. There's all a, a scientific or I should say a, an economic way of looking at all those different investments which can return 
income to the museum. You know what I find interesting about all of this this bill. I mean, you know, one, yes, there is a science uh, that that can be applied. That that these things don't need to be randomized. Uh, you know, hey, we got a closet. Let's put the gift shop in there, kind of thing. Yep. Uh, but all of these these components that you're talking about the the shop, the uh, the the after hours spaces, the meeting rooms, uh, all of these practical functions also have a mission component to them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and I know you and I have been on teams uh, here in in the D.C. area where we have to look very carefully uh, at a at an institution who says, well, yes, of course we're going to have lots of large parties. And I remember you saying, well, are you know are are you different from the museum down the street that has the large party? Uh, are you providing a unique service to your community, or are you providing a redundant service because we already have lots of party rooms? Maybe Maybe what we need is a, a better, uh, a smaller theater space uh, for smaller venues. I'm just you know, using that as an example. So it really starts to be uh, looking at the museum and rooting that in the, the culture and the needs of the community and then applying the practical applications of this to make sure that whatever decisions are made are going to be successful. Uh, well said. I, that's perfect. Well, see, you've taught me so well, Bill. You really, really have. And I think that before I ask you for uh, more uh, more discussions about, uh, I really want to get into the trends that you've seen and the changing trends over the net, uh, over these past thirty years. I mean, museums and and cultural attractions have really changed the way they've had to do business. I want to get into a few more of those tr- uh, trends. But before I do, and then have to cut you off. I think we're going to take our break uh, a little early today, and uh, when we come back, more discussions with Bill Owens about the the trends in the museum business practices. We will be uh, back in a few minutes. I want to remind you, though, that you can always reach out to me at carolbossertservices.com, where you can listen to this and uh, all the other shows that perhaps uh, you've, you've missed over the past few weeks. And please, you can always reach out to me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Uh, happy to hear from you. Would love to hear from you. And also hear what other issues you think that we should be in conversation about me. We'll be back in a moment. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with Bill Owens, owner of Owens Economics. And uh, Bill is an advisor to museums and cultural attractions about their business models and their feasibilities. Uh, And we've been talking about the – we sort of jumped in, and we were talking about some of the science involved and uh, the practical implications involved in some of the museum's ancillary uh, activities, such as their their shop and and their uh, after-hours rental space and their uh, their space is being used for other activities but but bill we sort of glossed over the 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 main point and that was the visitor experience itself yeah i think uh i jumped in and started talking about the the store in order to to make the store successful you got to get people to come in to the door and i think yeah it's the the quality the nature of the visitor experience is absolutely critical um you know going back to uh, some people's reluctance to uh they call themselves museums if they're planning a, a new new attraction or a new institution. It's, it's because there have been some museums who've seen their their attendance decline and and others who have seen their attendance uh, increase. I think if if I look at the museums that are doing well, and I'm not talking about uh, in the context of the economic uh, conditions of the past couple of years, but but in, in more general terms, museums that do well are providing. Uh, a contemporary, engaging uh, type of visitor experience where the uh, exhibits are uh, dynamic, participatory, and you can think of all the, the buzzwords to use. But I think it's it's really important that museums think in terms of what their visitors uh, expect and what who they're competing with in terms of visitor time, visitor attention, and, and visitor dollars. I have participated in in so many different focus groups uh, for museums who are planning expansions. And the subject of the focus group turns to, uh, you know, have you been there? What was your reaction? Why haven't you gone back? And there's so many kind of a once a generation type of museum experiences. Uh, I'm taking my kid because my parents took me 
uh, my kids would find it boring. Um, and that certainly isn't you know, a hallmark of the of the industry, but it's 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 what I think you have to avoid to get people to be uh, enthusiastic about coming, enthusiastic about uh, uh, about returning, because I think kids learn differently. People are are used to uh, dynamic, fast moving, hard hitting types of things, whether it's uh, through home entertainment or in the theater and so forth, but it's a kind of experience that you really need to to provide using your collections and your artifacts and things as as a basis for doing that. Um, the other point I would make is is there's a need to uh, not just rest on your laurels, but to to reinvest in in what you're offering to the visitors. I think that's one of the key lessons that comes from the theme park business. It's not a uh, a coincidence the theme parks are constantly building roller coasters it's it's the fact that uh, the, those new investments uh, give people another reason a new reason to come back it gives the the attraction uh, a new reason to reach out to uh, to visitors uh, to come back and one of my favorite stories has to do with a, a museum and I'm not going to mention the name but back in the late 60s early 70s there was a National Geographic article about this museum and uh, fast forward to uh, 2000 and something you could use that 30 year old National Geographic article as as the guide to the museum because nothing had changed well their attendance had had declined from a peak during the, the bicentennial uh, by 50% and again focus groups uh, through focus groups we found that people had just uh, gotten tired of seeing the same old thing um, generation after generation. So yes, uh, I I know that museum. Uh, I know several of them, and and it's but it's a ch in in all in all reality, it's also a challenge for museums uh, in this day and age to uh, to make big changes. You know, we've we've gone through the era of of the blockbuster art exhibit. Mm -hmm. Uh you know, that that was a trend that that we saw and I think that that was extremely uh useful. It it, it uh, many of these blockbusters, I'm thinking of King Tut and some sure. of the others really brought new audiences through the door, but after that the museum didn't have much new to offer because they had put all of their resources, both financial and human resources, into this one blockbuster exhibit. So it can sort of backfire, can it? Well, I, 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 yes, it can. But I think that it's it's critical that uh, museums do plan and do um, to try to do their best to get the resources to enable them to make those make those changes, uh, rather than just wait until. Uh, things get so tired and attendance starts to, to trend downward that they react. It has to be, I think, built into the business plan uh, that exhibits are refreshed or uh, changing exhibits or a combination of the two are used to, again, provide visitors with a, a new and, and different experience and a new and marketable experience. Yes, and and in a way, what we're really talking about, uh, even though we're using business terms to describe it, is we're really talking about being uh, uh, sensitive to our visitors' needs, their changing needs, and doing whatever it takes to keep the conversation going. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. 
Well, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, some of the uh, museums that you've been in, involved with looking at uh, uh, how one of the things I'd really like to, to get your opinion on, I know it, it, it sort of uh, changes back and forth, and, and that is the issue of charging an admission price. That's a uh, very interesting subject. Um, very interesting. If you, if you look at some of the, the uh, academic research, I think you'll find that, uh, that admissions fee pricing isn't a barrier to uh, museum attendance. Um, but if you look at the experience uh, of museums that have dropped their admissions fee, it suggests otherwise. I know in the uh, uh, United Kingdom, as part of the Millennium Celebration, uh, the National Museums, I think in in England and Scotland and Wales, all dropped their fees. And uh, 10 years later, uh, attendance is still... It, it's 50 or 70 percent, I can't remember the exact number, but substantially higher than it was uh, during the millennium. And after fees were dropped, uh, some museums saw their attendance increased by two or threefold. Uh, you know, that's all well and good, but I think you have to consider some of the uh, consequences, intended or, or unintended consequences. Uh, obviously, uh, you're going to uh, lose revenue. Um, I think a museum that uh, is considering dropping uh, their admissions needs to consider how they're going to make up that that lost revenue, whether it's through additional visitor spend or through uh, philanthropic contributions or, or whatever that's going to be. I think there's some real issues uh, dealing with other aspects of the museum, for example, the impact on memberships. You know, a lot of museum membership sales come because they provide a way to uh, for their visitors to realize a value. It's one of the, the reasons people buy those memberships. And if you do away with the admissions charge and the value of the membership uh, is, is tied to uh, to the admission, then, then you have a, an issue with your, your membership uh, sales. Uh, there's the whole issue of uh, wear and tear on the museum, just dealing with the additional visitors. There's the practical aspect of, of capacity. Uh, for those museums that you know, doubled their attendance, um, if they had theaters or uh, restrooms or stores that, that, that uh, had to do, their operations were influenced by the number of visitors, I think they had some operational issues issues there. There's also, I think, the impact uh, on other other attractions. If you have a, uh, a museum that drops its admissions charge, it could impact other museums who may not be in that same uh, situation. Uh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I just, I, I find that that very, all of this very interesting. The um, because I, I hear from different institutions, uh, you know, one, it was very. Some say, oh yes, it was very positive. Uh, to you know, drop our admissions fees. I I just recently spoke to an art museum director who said, you know, when you look at the numbers in our art museum in our city, uh, the the admission fee only uh, covered maybe one or some very low percentage mm -hmm. of the of the total cost because some institutions have a significant back of house cost. You know, they're conserving art uh, 
or they are going on research, uh, uh, re- research um, uh, pro- uh, field work to get uh, you know dinosaurs or, or archaeological materials. I'm just wondering, did you have in all of your in your work over the last years, have you ever noticed any trends that certain types of museums uh, have an easier time of of reducing or eliminating their admissions fees? I mean, do museum do do are there sub audiences in this that uh, uh, you know? So we can't really just make blanket statements about that. I think it's on a, a case by case basis. I think the the the, the key variable is uh, the percent of the operating budget that's supported by admissions revenue. Clearly, if if you rely on admissions for you know, 30%, 40%, 50% or more of your of your total revenue, then the the issue of, of dropping that and replacing the the revenue becomes much more uh, much more important. If your admissions constitute 10% of your revenue, um, it's a it's a different story. I think. Uh, there, there's, there's another reason that people, the museums, uh, drop their admission, and that's to uh, provide better access to uh, different populations. And I think they're, uh, number one, I think the, the experience has been that uh, while you get a significant increase in uh, disadvantaged population uh, attendance, that the overall proportion of Disadvantaged attendance to total attendance is is relatively insignificant, and there are probably other ways to reach the people that you're trying to uh, provide access to. And and uh, you have to realize there are other things that need to be done in terms of marketing, in terms of making people feel comfortable if they're uh, from a minority population. They go hand in hand with just reducing the the admission fee as a barrier to to visiting a museum. I think that's a very important point to make. Uh, I, I think you've made two very important points. One, uh, there really is a broad variety uh, across the spectrum, uh, depending on the kinds of it, kind of institution it is, where it's located. I'm sure there are lots of other factors that uh, go into the percentage of uh, the the uh, uh, revenue that is generated or is needed to be generated by the gate, by the admissions charge. Uh, and I, so I, so we can't, we ha- always have to be talking about the individual institution. And that's why you uh, provide such value to an institution because you go in and sort of get into their skin or into their DNA and understand what their specific issues are. And, and the second is to say that while admission price may be a barrier to some people to who are making a choice whether they go to this museum or not it's perhaps not the uh the most important or or even the uh the only issue and that a museum who isn't doing everything else that they can do to reach out to uh, a, a new population or to affect their needs or, or as my friend Gretchen Jennings always says, being empathetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are going to know they're not welcome no matter whether you you know extend a free invitation or not. Uh, exactly. And I think there, there's a, a hybrid um, set of actions that can take place too. And that's not just doing away 
uh, with all of your admissions, but but be doing it on a uh, on a more select basis, uh, having a, a free Friday for local citizens, or or making every every Sunday free for families. It's, there there are a lot of different ways to do that, and I think those types of approaches also lend themselves to uh, finding uh, philanthropic interest that can support uh, offsetting the the revenues that you've lost by by uh, dropping the admissions price on a selected basis versus dropping it across the board. Interesting, interesting. Bill, I want to sort of jump uh, jump a little bit because I want to talk about one of the things that, that uh, boy, we saw in the 90s. That's when I felt like every project that you and I were working together one way or the other, and that was on when there was this big boom in uh, urban revitalization that was all that that often was anchored with a cultural institution and I'm thinking of the examples in Baltimore certainly with the Baltimore Aquarium that helped anchor that uh, downtown revitalization as well as the Tennessee Aquarium in Chattanooga those are two that I'm I'm personally involved with and then also uh, maybe like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the the um, Great Lake Science Center in uh, Cleveland. Uh, so there, there was a time where revitalization of museums uh, or revitalization of an urban center started with a cultural anchor. Is that uh, still the case? I, I, I think it is the case. I think a lot of the uh, early opportunities, the, the, the very visible opportunities, you know, those have all been <clears throat> taken care of. But I know in in Washington, D.C., for example, uh, uh, the city has made a requirement uh, for a cultural component to a number of its redevelopment uh, uh, area plans. Uh, the Southwest Waterfront, um, the uh, Anacostia Waterfront, there are requirements that developers provide, still provide, uh, a cultural piece, which could be a museum. I know the, the Spy Museum that, that you worked on in my old firm, uh, worked on it back in the day was the anchor that you're talking about the catalyst for redevelopment of the uh, downtown entertainment entertainment district uh, at that point the city uh, bent over backwards to provide uh, some very favorable tax increment financing uh, for for the museum uh, that area is now a, a thriving destination in the city uh, you couldn't go into the same area and expect to get any support. But I think if you went to those other two areas that I mentioned, the possibility uh, would exist. I think another aspect of, of museums and economic development is the museum's role in kind of strengthening an area that's already started to, to redevelop, not just being uh, the anchor. And if you, you look at uh, Chicago, for example, um, I think the Chicago Children's Museum uh, was going to move to in order to expand. It's now back uh, at, at Navy Pier, not back at Navy Pier, but its, it's planned expansion is to take place at Navy Pier where it's located now. And the Pier and Expedition Authority is going to invest uh, quite a bit of money in that expansion because they realize the value of the museum in bringing visitors uh, to the pier. Uh, in New York City, uh, the city put in money to help refurbish the uh, the slip for the uh, USS Intrepid Museum. 
because they realize its value as a tourism anchor uh, for that part of the city. And you can go on. There are lots of examples where cities and state governments are investing in museum and cultural attractions, uh, not because they're trying to start revitalization activities, but they're trying to uh, maintain and strengthen uh, revitalization activities and maintain strong visitor nodes. And, and recognizing, too, that mu- the, the museum and cultural attraction is key to maintaining and building and reaching out to the community, whether the community is, a, is local or whether the community is international in the case of the uh, Intrepid in New York, as, mm-hmm. as you were saying. It's really just getting back to understanding who your audience is and, and how you can reach out to them and, and how you can partner uh, with other other stakeholders. Very, very important. Uh, We are going to stop now and uh, take another break. And when we return, uh, we will talk to Bill a little bit about uh, something that that, uh, sometimes gets a bad rap, and that is the feasibility study. So when we return, uh, please... Please stay tuned. Bill's going to help us understand the, uh, uh, the, the, the truth and the reality and the importance of these important, uh, important studies. But for now, uh, thank you so much for listening to Museum Life. Uh, this is Carol Bossert. Uh, you can always reach me or listen to this show and others at carolbossertservices.com. And please drop me a line at carol.bossert at verizon.net and let me know what you'd like to be talking to. We'll be back in a minute. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. 
To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I'm here with Bill Owens. And right before break, I promised you that Bill was going to help us finally understand what those feasibility studies are about, why we need them, but what their limitations are. So, Bill, please, please teach us. <laughs> I feel like this, you know, somebody's pulling back the curtain for the Wizard of Oz. Um, and it's not like that at all. I think feasibility studies... Um, I won't describe them as a necessary evil, but we've talked earlier about uh, some of the, the scientific, the economic ways of looking at things. And the feasibility study is is the, the mechanism that allows you to do those things. Um, let me start by saying that feasibility analysis, particularly in in the attractions world, is as is, is much of a, uh, an art as it is a, a science. I mean, you're trying to uh, project future behavior for a product or a visitor experience that has probably not been uh, designed and won't be developed in 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 you won't be developed into the future into a, an economic uh, social context that is is kind of unknown too so you know, there's a lot of of uh, educated guesswork that goes into to doing a feasibility study uh, having said that i think those of us in the business have gotten a lot better at doing feasibility studies uh, over over time, and I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is that uh, we have better data to work with. Uh, a lot of museums are doing uh, good market research to support their own activities, and when that's made available uh, to a feasibility consultant, it makes for a, a much better product. I think... There are also organizations within the museum industry, such as AAM or the Association of Children's Museums, uh, that makes information on their members uh, available, about the, their segment of the industry available. So, again, there's better information for the, the feasibility consultant to use. On the market side, I think there's also better information available about the, the the markets that are available, whether it's the the resident market or the visitor market, uh, GIS has been such a, a tremendous tool uh, for people such as myself in in helping to, to define market areas. Uh, in the old days, we used to to draw a circle around a, a city and say that's the market. Uh, now you can actually uh, do a custom run based on on drive times to give consideration to better access from some directions than others. Uh, you can uh, acknowledge the impact of, of physical barriers, uh, such as rivers or you know, cultural barriers. Uh, people don't go from Maryland to Virginia or, or back again, as you and I had talked about uh, before, Carol. Right. Um, so the, so the, the techniques and available information has, has gotten a lot better. I think uh, – Feasibility consultants have also gotten a better understanding of the museum business. Uh, a lot of us came from the commercial attractions world, uh, and it, it, it's taken a while, to be honest, to, to understand the nuances of dealing with a nonprofit, dealing with 
uh, the museum sector. And I think those of us who have been, been doing this for a while have, have developed a, 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 a more empathetic understanding of, of the business. I think one thing I would, I would say is the importance of, of defining what feasibility means. Uh, a lot of times uh, I'll be called into a situation and the client will say, well, we need a feasibility study. And I come right back with the question, how do you define feasibility? If you were a commercial attraction, I'd have a real good sense of what feasibility meant because you have investors uh, that are looking for a certain turn, return on investment or a hurdle rate that, that would be applied. But what's feasibility for a museum? Is it based on uh, the number of visitors you bring in, the number of, of children you bring in, uh, the size of the operating budget, the size of any potential uh, gap between in, earned income and the budget. And I think it's important for uh, a museum client to be able to understand what is going to make a project, quote, feasible in, in their terms, in their eyes, uh, as they hire uh, a feasibility consultant. So it's also very important, I, I, uh, I would imagine, for both the if, – if, if there's a staff and a director as well as a museum board of being of, – of getting that full clarity, as we've talked on this show uh, with uh, several of my other guests, the, uh, the makeup of museum boards are changing as well. And if you have a board that is used to uh, being in uh, for-profit business, they – uh, may take a little bit more on, uh, uh, discussion uh, uh, to under, help them understand what a feasibility study is in this arena. Yeah, it goes back to our earlier discussion of uh, the increased understanding of the importance of being in the museum business. That you know, we have more staff members who are uh, come from, with a business background. And also board members that come with a, a business background. And I know one situation I was in, I was presenting the results of a feasibility study. And uh, it, in my mind and the director's mind, uh, had a positive outcome. But one of the brand new board members you know, slammed his, his fist on the table and said, how can you call this project feasible? It doesn't make any money. <laughs> and, and the director and I looked at each other and the board members looked at me and the board members looked at the director and uh, there was a little bit of uh, education that took place there about uh, what the museum world was really like. So, so those are some of the, the key aspects of, of entering into a feasibility study, obviously, understanding the terms and terminology and what it will and will not tell you. Uh, so what are the, some of the keys to a good feasibility study? I think uh, there, there are several that I'd like to mention. One is, is making sure that you honestly give your consultant um, license to return with an answer that uh, the, the, a correct answer. Don't try to uh, influence the consultant with uh, yeah, expectations. And we think don't bring a consultant in to to validate uh, a conclusion that you've already reached. I know, and for example, uh, for the the DC Historical Society when the City Museum was being uh, developed in, in Washington, I think the consultant there was kind of said, "Okay, we need you." Uh, to 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 show how all these different schemes we have can can be used to support uh, 
in this case, the bonds that were going to be used to develop the, the museum. And it just was, a, I think, a, a untenable situation for the economic consultant to be in. So I, one is, yeah, let your consultant know that, the, that you're, you're expecting his honest professional opinion, not to have them come back with some answer that you, you think you want to hear. I think in order to do a good feasibility study, you need to work at reducing the unknowns. Uh, for in, in my mind, you can't do a feasibility study if you don't have a location or you don't have a concept. I think you have to have all, well, you have to have key variables such as, as location, such as concepts, such as scale. Uh, if not nailed down specifically, at least in terms of you know, a good idea so that the consultant can take those uh, variables into consideration. So you, so you can't just come uh, have a have a really great idea for a project and then hire the feasibility uh, consultant and say to to say is this a good idea? You need That's to be you you need to ground the idea in the realities of of a place and uh, uh, an experience. Yeah, and I think. The, the feasibility consultant, the economic consultant, can be part of helping you make decisions. Uh, it's not unusual to be brought in as a location is being selected, as a concept is being developed. And I think there's a, a way for the economic consultant to help show what the financial implications are, or the, the attendance implications are of alternative A versus B versus C. So I'll go ahead. No, I no. That's I, I. I think you're absolutely right. And the other point, uh, we've got about three minutes to close, so I don't want to leave this program without uh, giving you an opportunity to uh, to def I'm not really defend feasibility studies, but you know, in our business, they've gotten a bad rap sure. because museums then use the feasibility study that was maybe done five years ago to project what their admission or attendance will be in a new environment. I mean, you know, feasibility studies have a have sort of an expiration date, don't they? Yeah, I, I think two, two, two words of wisdom. Is, one is, is keep the economic consultant involved uh, throughout the development and implementation process. So as, as plans change, as market changes uh, uh, come into to play, then the impact on the original numbers can be um, considered and, and revised as, a, as appropriate. The other thing is, is to make sure that you remember the, the fine print that probably was in the feasibility study, the qualifiers, if you will, the, the conditions that kind of are underneath, underlay the, the, uh, the numbers that the feasibility consultant is, is uh, presenting. Like, uh, like, like what? How would a uh, example would be? Um, uh, there's a certain marketing budget built into a pro forma. Uh, recommendations on pricing. Uh, I know one study that I worked on. Uh, I had an attendance number, and I said this is going to be a year three number. In order to reach this, certain things have to happen. Uh, the area improvements have to be complete. You can't charge more than ten dollars. And you have to have a marketing budget of at least, I can't remember the number, $100,000. And the only only number that, that remained in terms of the thinking of the client was the attendance number that I had provided. 
and all the other conditions kind of they forgot about and museum did not do well. Ah, very, very good points. Very, very good points. Uh, well, Bill, we have, uh, I have truly enjoyed this opportunity for, for you to share some of the, the business thinking behind, uh, museum projects, not only new, new business, but, uh, but expansions and, and even museums that are, that are not maybe considering doing something major, but just sort of to get a, a sense of, of, of where they are and, and how they can improve reaching out to their existing audiences. Uh, I would encourage everyone, uh, if you're thinking in along those lines, Bill would be a great person to talk to at Owens Economics. Uh, so, Bill, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Bill, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, we will be back next week with Museum Life. Uh, remember, you can uh, listen to this show as well as uh, any other show that you may have uh, missed over the past few weeks uh, at carolbossertservices.com. And, of course, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. We'll be back next week with a very interesting show, and I hope you'll uh, plan on listening then. This is Carol Bossert with Museum in life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.